They say that in the case of mysterious deaths, the first 48 hours are critical. If investigators don't make a breakthrough in that time, the chances of resolving the case are greatly diminished. But what if you don't make a breakthrough in the first 48 hours or the first 48 days? What if you don't make a breakthrough in 48 years? Welcome to the mysterious case of Fred the Head and one of the UK's most baffling unsolved crimes. Episode 23 The Man from the North Some things just come out of nowhere. They come out of left field. And this episode is about one of those things that happened last week. About a week ago, someone had asked me to be their Facebook friend, someone I didn't know. Now that happens quite a lot these days, and normally if it's someone from within the Facebook group, I'll accept. We are, after all, all on the same side. But this person wasn't in the Facebook group, so I didn't accept it, but I didn't reject it either. To be honest, I thought no more about it. But then, a few days ago, they sent me a message through Facebook Messenger. And this is what it said. Hi Ken, I need to send a private message for your eyes only. Now, I didn't quite know what to make of that. So, I sent a message back that says, yeah, of course, feel free, how can I help? few minutes later another message came I've recently heard that you've been looking into Fred the head and I'd like to talk to you sometime soon I contacted the police 12 months ago telling them what I know and they've never got back to me now one of the things I'd always hoped for was that this podcast this investigation would be a vehicle for someone who knew something to come forward an opportunity to come forward and to tell me what had happened. And this is what was happening. So they got my interest. So I arranged to have a telephone conversation with them in which they told me a story in such vivid detail that it was very difficult not to be intrigued. And later that evening, we met and discussed the things in even more detail. Now, I'm nervous about taking anything people say at face value. We were nearly caught out on that a couple of episodes ago. But when somebody says to me, I know Fred's name, I know the killer's name, and I know how, where, why, and when he was killed, I'd be pretty silly to ignore it. So this episode is that story in all its detail. And it's quite an amazing story. So I'm going to tell you it exactly as it was told to me. Now, I've written it all down, and the way I tell it may sound like a novel, but it's simply the fact that I had to script it because it's so complicated. Now, it doesn't mean it's true. I'm making no claims for its truthfulness yet. Because I need the time to check the facts that are in this story, see if I can verify them, 
whether the people that are included in this story actually existed. Are they still alive? Do the dates of births tally up? Do the places of origin correspond to people of those names? And I can also do that with the people who I've changed the names of because I know their real names. So until that process is complete, I can't be sure of its veracity. The other thing I won't confirm is the name of the person who told me all this. And you'll see as we go through the story, he's not some innocent bystander. This is not something he heard off someone else, off someone else. He is right in the middle of this story. So I have to protect his identity as well. So grab a coffee, make yourself comfortable because I'm about to take you back in time to the mid 60s, 1965 to be precise. In 1965, a man was driving the 170 miles from Burton-upon-Trent to Gateshead in the northeast of England. He was alone, and for the car at least, it was a one-way journey. That car was stolen. It had a false logbook, it had a false MOT, and its registration and identity had been completely changed from the car that man had received a few weeks earlier. The man who was delivering it as just another link in the underworld chain of car theft and resale. For people in the trade, a very nice and very lucrative sideline. That man we'll call Mr A. Mr A was a small-time gangster in Burton in the 1960s. And in the middle of the 1960s, gangland crime was part of the fabric of society. It seemed to be making front page news in every newspaper. Now, Burton wasn't London. It didn't have the myth of the celebrity gangsters in London like the craze, but it was its equal in some ways. It was just as ruthless, cunning, and as vicious as anywhere else in the country. Now, Mr. A ran a legitimate business, a garage providing repairs and car sales but it was also the perfect front for a host of criminal activity. From car theft, change number plates, change log books, respraying, sold to an unsuspecting customer, to more serious crime. From theft, from commercial premises, all the way through to producing counterfeit money. The problem with producing counterfeit money is how do you pass it off? How do you introduce it into the general circulation of money. And Mr. A had quite an ingenious solution to that. He had connections with the unregulated world of on-course betting at various horse racing tracks around the country. And that meant that many unsuspecting punters who collected their winnings from the bookies often took away a few counterfeit £5 and £10 notes as part of their winnings. It suited the bookies, who were willing to pay for their share of good fakes. It reduced their real money costs when they were losing. But it also meant that very gradually that money got introduced into the general circulation. Very few punters, probably slightly the worse for wear for drink, are going to check exactly 
the veracity of every one of the £10 notes in their winnings. Burton, at the time, was booming. The breweries were working round the clock, pumping out the beers that quenched the thirst of a nation that was emerging from the dour greyness of post-war 1950s into the bright lights of the swinging 60s. And the big Pirelli plant, tyre manufacturer and its suppliers, was also booming as widespread car ownership was developing throughout the country. If you wanted a job in 1965, in Burton, you could be offered three by lunchtime. Mr A delivered his car, collected his money and made his way back to Burton, this time by train. And that journey sets off a chain of coincidence that led to the murder of a young man. But fate needed to intervene first. And fate dictated that Mr A happened to be sitting in the same carriage as three young men on the way from the northeast, where the dominant shipbuilding industry was on its knees. They were making the journey that so many were making southwards, being drawn by the magnet of prosperity to the thriving industrial heartlands of Manchester and Birmingham, where their skills and strength were in short supply, or further on to the glittering metropolis of London. As people did more back then, the four men started talking. The three men outlining their plans to find work in Manchester. Mr A telling them if they wanted work, they'd be better off in Burton, where fellas like those with an appetite for hard work were in short supply. In fact, he could put them in touch with someone who would give them a job straight away. A legitimate job, paying well, and they could all be together. The three men's day had just taken a turn for the better. They were only a few miles out of Newcastle, but already they'd been fixed up. The three young men were Mark Tomlinson, Rick Milford, and maybe someone called Paul Walton, Waldron, something like that. And these are the real names, according to the man who told me this story. Mark and Rick, now Rick was spelt R-I-K. He'd seen it that name written on a dartboard. Pretty sure about that. These two were Geordies. They came from Peter Lee in County Durham. They spoke with a distinct but understandable Geordie accent. Now, for people outside the UK, a Geordie accent is the accent of Newcastle and the surrounding areas, just like Liverpudlian is the accent for people from Liverpool. So these people were from the northeast. But the third man, this man we don't quite know the name of, he spoke very differently, a much, much thicker accent than the other two. Very difficult for someone not from that area to understand. And in fact, so different that even his two companions had some difficulty understanding him. That might mean he was from a completely different area. And even his name was unclear. No one could quite grasp what it was. And because of that, and because he had come from the town of Peter Lee on this journey, he became known as Peter Lee, or Pete Lee, from then on. So, Mr A decided to call him Pete Lee, and that's what stuck. 
So Mark Tomlinson, Rick Milford and the newly christened Pete Lee changed their plans and took the train with Mr A all the way to Burton-upon-Trent. Mr A was as good as his word and within 24 hours the three men were all employed at the BTR factory in Burton which supplied rubber to the Pirelli plant. So far so good or so it seemed but there was a problem. Slowly but surely Mr A involved them in his criminal activities. And there was another issue. The man they'd christened Pete Lee the young man with a strange accent, whose real name became long forgotten and replaced with this nickname. He had an issue. He was attracted to girls, very young girls, and he made no secret of it. He also found himself more deeply involved with the criminal activities of Mr. Ray over the years. And between 1965 and 1968, both of those issues put him on a collision course that would end in his death. Mr A was a strange personality. He had a complex and deeply inconsistent set of morals. A criminal who thought nothing of violence mixed in with a deep hatred of anyone that didn't quite fit his own strict rules of decency. Now, for example, he detested, and I mean detested, gay men, and would enjoy taking out his repressed anger on anybody he considered involved in what he would describe as abnormal relations. And for the vast majority of people, the activities of Pete Lee and how he preyed on young girls would be detestable. But for Mr A, it was something far far worse than that but simply being a paedophile at a time when there were many wasn't quite enough to get you killed in the world of Mr A but if you crossed him in his criminal activities well that was different and when Pete Lee did that coupled with the activities he was also involved with he'd signed his own death warrant Thanks for downloading the podcast. I'm glad you're staying with it. Who'd have thought we would have got to episode 23 by now? And remember, this story, it's very strange, but it was told to me by someone very close to Mr. A, someone within his own family. So we have got to take that seriously. And the way I'm going to organise this and the next podcast is a bit different to normal. So this podcast the one you're listening to now will just be the story as it was told to me the next podcast which will be released in seven days next weekend will be an update on the results of the investigation into this account of what happened i've been busy trying to peel away the layers of this narrative trying to piece together what actually did happen and with an account like this there are a lot of things to check and it's only if something is confirmed independently of this story that's been told to me by someone else can I really start to believe that it's the truth. Because at the moment, at this point, it's just someone's account of what happened. It's a very interesting one, 
but that's all it is it's neither true or false it's in this kind of neutral state until it's verified and only after it's verified by something else when that process is complete can we choose to believe it or disbelieve it that's what will appear in the next episode episode 24 released in a week's time a special shout out to a couple of people if you don't mind tom bamford good friend of mine asked to make sure that this podcast is released by 11 a.m sunday he's got a long drive ahead of him so there you go tom i'm as good as my word here's the podcast and to doreen dermody who i know likes to listen to the podcast i'm looking forward to seeing you next year doreen and hope you're keeping well anyway let's get back to this account and what happened in 1968 so a number of years have passed and you remember i mentioned that mr a was involved in all these criminal activities and that continued there's the car theft and redistribution but also there was this printing of counterfeit money distributed through race courses well away from burton and it's that second activity that concerns us from here the man with the nickname Pete Lee, had been drawn ever deeper into the criminal activities of Mr A, and that included the production of the forged money. And this was a sophisticated operation. It required specialist paper, specialist printing equipment, and very, very tight control. And the introduction of the money into the general circulation had to happen in that very particular way devised by Mr A, so as to minimise any risk of linking it back to Burton. And one of the particular beauties of this system that Mr A had devised for these forgeries was that it would quickly disperse around the country as recipients of this money returned away from the racecourses to wherever they'd come from. Large batches of counterfeit money must not turn up in places all at one time, and certainly not in your backyard and Mr A was careful he needed to be every note every sheet had to be accounted for and they couldn't just go walkabouts and unfortunately for Pete Lee when he decided to help himself to one of the newly printed sheets of 12 10 pound notes in 1968 he didn't reckon on Mr A's faultless bookkeeping of course, it didn't take very long for Mr. A to realise that there was a missing sheet and what had happened to it. A missing sheet of 12 £10 notes, £120, worth over £2,000 today. So Mr. A wouldn't have been in the mood for excuses, particularly from a man who was crossing the line of decency in such a detestable way. And a man called Pete Lee liked to drink. He could be found at a variety of watering holes around Burton, and Mr A was as creative in his vengeance as he was in his criminal activities. Mr A sent one of his boys to find Pete Lee, and to tell him that there were a couple of young girls drunk in a hut that they used in Bladen Woods. Now Bladen Woods is on land attached to Bladen Castle, about half a mile from Windshill, but very secluded. And that hut had been there for a while. It was used for shoots and woodland crafts, even used by the scouts for outdoor activities. 
Pete Lee didn't need much encouragement. Finished his pint, quickly made his way up to Bladen Woods and the hut amongst the trees. Of course, there were no girls there. There was some drink and Mr A and a couple of his most dependable henchmen. Mr A was not asking for explanations, not interested in Pete Lee's protestations of innocence. They pushed him down into a wooden chair, bound him hand and foot with newspaper twine. And Mr A opened a large bottle of whiskey, took a slug of it, but the rest was reserved for Pete Lee. Taking him by the neck, his two henchmen closed his nostrils and they started to pour whiskey into his mouth as he struggled to breathe. A couple of minutes later, Pete Lee had had enough. He confessed, told Mr A that the money was under his bed mattress and Mr A sent one of his men to go and recoup it. But over the next 15 minutes, it continued and Pete Lee was drowned with whiskey. His nose blocked, his only means of breathing filled and filled again and filled again and again with whiskey. Eventually, his body went limp. He was taken from the hut, bundled into the boot of a car and driven away. Driven to the wooden bridge over the Trent and the car was backed up to the gates. Now these locked gates were there but they weren't as secure as we think. You could climb around the gates and on the other side of the gates the lock could simply be lifted from the reverse side. It was only on the facing side you needed a key. If you managed to get behind them you could open them. And the trust body was carried across the bridge, across the old flint mill and deposited at the side of the kiln. The three men dug out the grave narrow and deep through the powdery earth and lowered him in. The body had been stripped of any clothing and any identifiers back in the hut. But in a final act, the body had girl socks forced on the feet just to identify the activities this man had been involved in. And his head was set to face north, the direction in which he'd come from. And without checking whether he was alive or dead, the grave was filled in, covered over with undergrowth and branches. And there, for the next hour, Mr A and his men sat on the grave, sharing a bottle of beer. Pete was missed, but not by many, and his Geordie companions did ask what happened to him. But he was told he'd gone to Manchester, remember the original destination three years ago, to start a new life with a girl that he'd met, probably wasn't coming back. And over the years, they drifted away from Burton and any memory of the man called Pete Lee disappeared with them. So that was the story that was told to me. I know it sounds far-fetched, it sounds too dramatic, but remember, someone was killed and murder is far-fetched and dramatic. And it will require someone, an ordinary person probably, to have done something terribly extraordinary for that body to be there at all. But of course we've had hoaxes before. But this did differ 
in three ways. Firstly, the letter we got, that was anonymous. This wasn't anonymous. I met this person. And the police, according to this person, have been told about this story. They spent four hours with him going through the story. And also, the man claims to be a relation of Mr. A. In fact, his nephew. And he was involved in many of the criminal activities that I've described in the account. He was by no means a saint. So it's not quite the same as the letter we received. So my job now becomes to verify it. Because unless another person or some kind of independent research supports this account, we have to dismiss it. We can't take it as true. We can't go on one person. So it's probably safe at this point not to believe it. Because we'll know next week whether to believe it or not. But what I can tell you is in that process of verification that's already ongoing, it has yielded some very interesting results. So, you may ask, why am I including an unverified account in the podcast? Well, there's two reasons for that. Firstly, it could be, and I emphasise the could be, very important. And secondly, the podcast is really only a diary of my investigation. It's a real-time diary. And I've spent the last two weeks on this, so you need to know that. It's part of the investigation. And, without giving the game away, it does seem to lead us to some interesting revelations. So, I'll be back in a week to keep you updated on what I've been able to find out. You won't have to wait too long. So, until next time, have a good one. The Mysterious Case of Fred the Head is a GSE Media production. Written, produced and narrated by myself, Ken Davis.